It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, July 16th, 2022. I'm Jared Halpern. President Biden lands in Saudi Arabia with questions about energy, security, and human rights looming. I think really success for him is a very long-term resetting of the relationship. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Before primary season wraps up, there are a few big contests left, including in Arizona, where voters in the purple state will decide if they want to keep a Democratic senator whose position is considered vulnerable and Republicans see an opening. Look, Arizonans won in Arizona and representing them in the United States Senate. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. President Biden flew from Israel to Jeddah, Saudi Arabia this week, the first American president to make that nonstop route. Before Air Force One took off from Tel Aviv Friday, Saudi Arabia made a significant aviation announcement of its own. Saudi airspace is now open to all airlines, including those traveling from Israel. From a practical standpoint, it will save air carriers and passengers hours of added flight time and fuel cost. But it also signals a small shift. Saudi Arabia, home of the holiest sites in Islam, has not recognized Israel. The two countries have no diplomatic ties. Though the president says this decision of overflight permission can help build momentum toward Israel's further integration in the region. Still, President Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia is raising other questions about U.S. support for a regime with human rights abuses, a country where women enjoy far fewer rights than men, and the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, has been assessed by U.S. intelligence to have ordered the killing of U.S.-based journalist Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. Based on our conversation, it did it did, it did reassure me the human rights issue, and on top of it, my husband's tragedy, it will come up. Hanan Khashoggi is the widow of Jamal Khashoggi. She met with administration officials before the president's trip. The president told reporters his views on Khashoggi's killing are well known, and he won't shy away from human rights, but says this summit in Jeddah is bigger than any one issue. Former U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia, Joseph Westfall, agrees. Westfall was the U.S. representative in Riyadh from 2014 to 2017. I asked him what success for President Biden looks like in Saudi Arabia. I think really success for him is a very long-term resetting of the relationship. I think he's realized that uh, as he attempts to deal with all these issues around the world, whether it's the Ukrainian situation, whether it's energy and and recession and inflation and so on, whether it's China, um, keeping the Europeans together, all of that is requires him to be globally engaged. And he can't disengage our country from one of the most important countries, not only in the Middle East, but maybe in the world, in terms of its resources, in terms of its influence. At the same time, you know, this is a country that has pretty well-documented human rights abuses. Uh, women do not enjoy the same rights as men. The intelligence community has assessed that the crown prince is responsible for ordering the killing of a U.S.-based writer. How do you look past all of that 
in the name of regional stability? Well, you don't really look past it. And as I think the president has said, you know, the, the human rights issues will always be raised by us. I remember raising them with Central American leaders when I worked for President Reagan, who staunchly wanted to support these leaders in their fight against, you know, in communist insurgencies. But he realized that their violations of human rights were hurting our ability to support them because the American people wouldn't tolerate that. And I think countries know that. And I don't think we raised it during the Obama administration on numerous occasions, both myself as ambassador and certainly the president. So I don't think that that's something that's an issue. I, I think he said what he said about the killing of Khashoggi and the other abuses that have taken place. And there's been a great deal of reform. And the hope would be that with an engaged uh, administration with this country, which, by the way, we have not been. I mean, Trump took two years to appoint an ambassador. By that time, it was too late. And the president still hasn't got an ambassador there. So I would point out, Jared, that everything that happened that we would say were, were negative steps, the crown prince booting out, the, the crown prince getting booted out, Mohammed bin Nayef, uh, by, by the current, current prince, crown prince, the in, you know, imprisoning people in the Ritz, Carlton, the other arrests and other violations of human rights. All of that stuff happened after I left as ambassador and the Obama administration was over. And it was a, a policy that said, whether you agree with it or not, that we're going to not engage in meddling in other countries' business. We don't want them engaging in our business. That was the, sort of the Trump philosophy. Um, Biden has a different view, and I think he's got to engage that. There was a lot made about, you know, the former president making his first international trip to Saudi Arabia and seemed to be a lot of, uh, of engagement, sort of at least early in that administration. Did that make positive steps in, in kind I, of the, I, I the reforms that yeah, you're looking at? I don't think so. And I'll give you two, two examples of where I think it didn't work. Uh, the first, of course, was that Aramco facilities were bombed by Iran. And we knew where those rockets and those drones came from. We knew exactly what base in northern Iran they came from. We could have easily, you know, bombed that base or, or retaliated in some way. We did nothing. So the Saudis you know, are thinking, okay, well, where's the United States when we need them? Number two, if you recall one of the visits by Mohammed bin Salman to uh, Washington to meet with President Trump. In the middle of that meeting, the president takes out these placards and holds them up, and it shows all the weapon systems that he wants to sell to the Saudis and how much they, they will be in the billions. And then the next placard was how many American jobs that say, that, you know, that will create. And your city, I mean, I've never seen that by any president. And that was without the Saudis knowing that he was going to do that. That was a complete surprise to them. I know that for a fact. So uh, what, was the, what was the motivation of the administration? It was certainly not human rights, and it was certainly not a good bilateral relationship. It was, we want to sell you things. We want you to buy things. We want to create more American jobs. One of the things that happened today before President Biden landed in, in Jeddah is uh, these overflight privileges now that, that Saudi Arabia has announced from, from commercial flights leaving Israel. How do you see the future of, of Saudi Arabia? I mean, Saudi Arabia was not a signatory to those Abraham Accords where some other Arab countries have opened up diplomatic ties with, with Israel. Do you see Saudi Arabia opening up its relationship with Israel? That would be extraordinary for the region, wouldn't it? It would be extraordinary. It's very important. And I am absolutely sure it's going to happen. 
it's going to take a little bit more time, but I believe that both Mohammed bin Salman and most of the leaders of Israel believe that this would be a good thing. So there's no reason for it not to go forward except one, and that's the king. The king, King Salman, is of the old generation mm-hmm. that lived through all of the wars with Israel, all of the, the turmoil in, in the Middle East because of the Palestinian situation. He really believes that in a two-state solution. He told me that and asked me to pass that on to President-elect Trump before I left, that uh, he believes in the right of the state of Israel to exist. In fact, he mentions uh, something to the effect that both Judaism, excuse me, both uh, Islam and Christianity emanate from Judaism. So he understands the importance of the Jewish people in the region and all, all of that. So I think that his father probably still holds to some of that importance of the Palestinian state as a two-state solution. Whether that can be achieved or not, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's very difficult right now. And so I think the, the crown prince has to respect his father's wishes and probably slowly generate that relationship. But he's of a different generation. He believes yeah. the state of Israel is important to Saudi Arabia for a variety of reasons. I assume one of those reasons is Iran. Absolutely. What? Iran is one of them, but also- I mean, there's some technology. economic, yeah, I said, there's some economic- Absolutely, totally. What, what does the domestic politics in Saudi Arabia mean in sort of opening up a relationship with Israel? Does that matter? I mean, obviously, you know, you're not, up for, you're not up for elections in Saudi Arabia, right? But, you know, it, politics matter everywhere. You're absolutely right. And, you know, you're the first person that I've heard say that of all the press people that I've talked to and listened to over this uh, period of time. You're the first person to put that up. And I think that's very important. And you're absolutely right, Gary. Every country, even a total dictatorship or a kingdom such as the one in Saudi Arabia, have to listen to public opinion. You know, otherwise, you know, you wouldn't, if you look at Putin, for example, as well as almost any of these leaders, their security is so high, so tough, because they fear that the public is not necessarily always with them. Now, in the case of Saudi Arabia, you have, you've had historically a very strong religious leadership, Mm -hmm. very strong, a dominating leadership that has caused all this, uh, you know, movement of this philosophy of Wahhabism to other Muslim countries around the world, creating problems everywhere in the Balkans, in Asia, certainly in Afghanistan and other places. So limiting the power of the religious leadership was one of the main things that Mohammed bin Salman needed to do. And I, I believe, you know, that, that no one else could have done this except him, that he had the fortitude and the aggressiveness to go after them. And when I was there as ambassador, for example, uh, we complained, I complained a lot about the religious police that were harassing women in particular all, all over. But I was afraid there was going to be some kind of an incident with one of my foreign service diplomats in, in the country. We have a huge embassy, mm-hmm. lots of people. And so I said to him, said, that happens. We're going to react. We're probably going to send all our families home and make it an unaccompanied post. You know, I mean, I made threats to that effect unless you take these people off the streets. And he did. Within months, they were gone. No one else, I think, would have done that. And I don't think Mohammed bin Naif or anybody else had as, as an open a view of that as, as Salman did. 
So it sounds to me like you think that that the crown prince is the leader that this region needs moving forward, uh, despite and, a lot of the, the criticism that, that he generates around the world. I do. I think he's a he's visionary. He's strong. He's very nationalistic about his country. There's no question that he's made huge mistakes. He's made mistakes in spending. He's made mistakes, in my view, in my humble view, he's made mistakes in spending, in violations of human rights. Uh, the Khashoggi thing was outrageous, and it's unbelievable that that, that happened. And, and whatever role he had in it, uh, he, he says, you know, he obviously says he didn't have, uh, he didn't intend for that to happen. Whether you believe that or not, I don't know. But he, he is the kind of person. But in the United States is very important to Saudi Arabia. And I know it's very important to him. And I believe that if we have a stronger partnership with a serious senior ambassador in place, uh, you know, I had been undersecretary of the army before, and I had, you know, the, the ear of the president and the national security advisor and the secretary of state. So we were fully engaged. You need that engagement to constrain other actions that could happen void of that. And then you got China, who's mm -hmm. just jumping in with, you know, everything, surpassing us with trade with Saudi Arabia, which should not be happening. They're building military bases on, in the Red Sea and on the, on the African coast. I mean, we, we, are, we are letting too much go by. So I think this meeting is important. I think the fact that he's meeting with the Gulf, the leaders of all the Gulf states, uh, plus Egypt, um, Jordan, and, and Iraq, is really important because I think what they need is they need a strategic union that addresses Iran, missile defense, you know, cybersecurity, trade, some of those Gulf countries do a significant amount of trade with Iran under the table. You know, mm -hmm. it's just little boats going across the water that nobody, you know, nobody's counting. And they're violating, you know, the, the uh, sanctions. Yeah, the UN sanctions. Yeah. So it, it sounds like this is probably not the, the last engagement you see happening between President Biden and, and the crown prince. This much as the no, White I House, you know, the White House has spent a lot of time the last few weeks trying to sort of distance the president from the crown prince and saying, listen, the meeting happens to be in Saudi Arabia. It's not about Saudi Arabia. Right. And, and do you see that that uh, sort of messaging changing, shifting over over the upcoming months and years? Yeah, I think I think this this meeting will definitely be followed up by trips by uh, cabinet secretaries yeah. of the United States, um, whether they be commerce or defense. Cert you know, certainly Tony Blinken will be Secretary going over Blinken, there, yeah. state secretary. Um, but others, you know, to cement, uh, you know, relationships in, in various areas. And that, I think, along with, you know, getting an ambassador there will, will really uh, correct the course. It doesn't mean that we ignore what happened in the past. Terrorism still exists in the region. Syria is a mess. Mm -hmm. The Russians are still there. Mm -hmm. They're having meetings with Iran. Putin is going there, I think, next week, right? That's something to be really watchful about because Iran is the only ally Putin has right now and, and maybe the only ally the Iranians have right now. So it sounds like the Iran issue is one of the, the underpinnings of the U.S.-Saudi relationship that has to be sort of the focus. Um, right. and, and so that, uh, obviously, would Saudi Arabia be opposed in the way that Israel is to a resurgence of the Iran nuclear deal? Is that something they want to see happen? I think they would stand with Israel on, on their thinking about opposition that. against it. Yeah, not against it. Uh, 
you know, when I was there, Mohammed bin Salman, you know, we were negotiating it. The Secretary mm-hmm. of State was. I wasn't a part of that, of course. But uh, in a conversation with Mohammed bin Salman, you know, I asked him about it, and he said, "Look, uh, we don't want a nuclear Iran for a lot of reasons. Even if it's for peaceful reasons, we fear that an accident." Mm-hmm. across the, the Arabian Gulf would flow right into our country. So we don't want a nuclear Iran any more than anybody else does. And we certainly don't want it in terms of its arming itself. But we want the United States to pressure them to get off helping the Houthis, helping uh, Hezbollah, mm-hmm. um, doing the kinds of things, co- coordinating with Russia and Syria. We want you to address those issues. And, and of course, that was not part of the, the negotiations. Yeah. So they're going to want the same thing, which is, I think, what the Israelis want. Mr. Ambassador, I appreciate your time, your expertise, uh, an important relationship to, to keep in mind. Thank you, Jared. Thanks. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. For several years, the state of Arizona had largely gone Republican, but they currently have two Democratic senators and nine congressional seats. Five are represented by Democrats. In 2020, Arizona voters went for Joe Biden over Donald Trump, just barely by about 0.3 percent. It was the first time Arizona went for a Democrat in a presidential election since 1996. In this landscape, however, with high inflation and the president's sinking poll numbers, Republicans have high hopes in the state's federal races, especially now as Republican registration has gone up in the state. 34.5% of registered voters in Arizona are Republican, followed closely by unaffiliated voters, which is the fastest growing group. Just under 31% of voters are registered Democrats. I'd actually like to ask everybody on this stage if they would agree we had a corrupt stolen election. Raise your hand. Did well, we I have? Would, did we I, have? This is I would question. like to. I, I'm not going to play your, your stunt. Republican candidate for governor Carrie Lake asked that question at a recent debate. She has been endorsed by President Trump. The former president will rally with Lake next Friday in Arizona, along with his pick in the Republican Senate primary, Blake Masters, who recently debated two other candidates, including Jim Lehman, an Army veteran and CEO of a major solar power company. We were energy independent at the tail end of President Trump's administration. We need to reimplement those America First policies. President Trump trusts me to do that. He met with Jim Lehman. He thought he was a bozo. I'm the America First candidate. That's why I'm endorsed. They're vying for a seat currently held by Democrat Mark Kelly, and the analysts and experts say he is vulnerable. One of the Republicans running who was once higher up in the polls than he is now was not at that debate this past week. The current attorney general of Arizona said he was in Washington, D.C., dealing with issues relating to the border. Look, Arizonans won an Arizonan representing them in the United States Senate. Mark Brnovich is Arizona's attorney general and a Republican candidate for Senate. And the reality is I am the only person with a real record and I'm a real fighter. And there's a reason why people like Mark Levin have endorsed me, because I am involved in every major lawsuit and every major fight in this country. And even going back to the Obama administration, it was me that was taking on uh, President Obama's administration over job killing EPA regulations and the federal expansion under the guise of the waterways of the U.S. So I have a real record. And at the end of the day, Arizonans know that. And there's been a lot of money spent. I mean, you got this out of state you know, billionaire 
spending a bunch of money on, you know, some guy who moved to Arizona that was living in a sanctuary city for a while. And I think eventually voters are going to realize that he doesn't represent Arizona values either. And this race is so important. Um, and unfortunately, Mark Kelly's numbers aren't as bad as they should be, considering how often, you know, he votes with, you know, Chuck Schumer and Bernie Sanders. So that's why it's important to have someone that's principled. I've won twice statewide. I was outspent in 2018 when I ran for re-election and got more votes than Cinema or McSally in the race. And so I'm a proven fighter. And I think at the end of the day, people respect that and they will vote for me. And look, I mean, I don't worry about polls. I've never did any polling ever in my life until I ran for Senate, never looked at them. I'd always tell people, look, I live in the same middle class neighborhood I grew up with down the street from the public high school I went to. And Hmm. if I want to know what people think, I go to the grocery store and I talk to them. And that's why I know how bad grocery prices are. Um, (laughs) You know, I go to the gas station where I was a paper boy, you know, where I used to fill up my bike tires. And, you know, I know what it's like to have to worry about paying for gas and groceries and saving for your kid's college. And so I think people respect that. And at the end of the day, I'm going to win because I'm a real Arizonan. The latest poll has Blake Masters up seven points, even though you don't care about polling. Um, But it also has far more people undecided than for any candidate in this race. What are you doing to go get those folks? Why, Why are they undecided? Yeah, I think there's the poll. There's there's different polls out there. But here's the bottom yeah. line. This is a race between Blake and myself. And at the end of the day, those undecided voters will appreciate that they'll ignore the millions of dollars that Blake and Peter Thiel are spending. They'll ignore what President Trump has or hasn't said about me because they'll realize when it comes to border security, you know, protecting our Arizona values, protecting our Second Amendment rights. And being energy independent, low taxes, ro- low regulation, they care about those issues that I'm going to be the person to vote for. And I'm a principled Arizonan. And so what I do every chance I get, whether it's talking to you, whether it was just I was just on John Roberts's show, making right. sure people know that I am fighting for them every day. And I think people appreciate that. And one of the most important things I remind folks of all the time is Ronald Reagan used to say, if someone agrees with you seven out of ten times, They're not your enemy. They're your friend. And I used to always say the Brnovich caveat to that is if someone agrees with you 10 out of 10 times, they're not your friend. They're not your enemy. They're not your spouse. They're surely not your teenage kid. They're someone you're paying. And one of my daughters, one of my daughters has heard me say that. And she said, Dad, what you need to remind folks is that 10 out of 10 times, no one agrees with you, but they know where you stand and they know why you take the positions you take and you know you're going to be able to defend them. And I think that's important. At the end of the day, undecided voters will realize that even if they don't agree with me all the time, they know I'm a principled Arizonan, I'm a first-generation American, I'm a middle-class kid, and that I understand, as I said, what it's like to worry about gas prices and grocery prices and saving for your kid's college, and I'm going to work hard to earn every single vote, and no one will outwork me. I started working when I started delivering the newspapers as a as, you know, 12-, 13-year-old, and I haven't stopped working since. So no one's going to outwork me. They may outspend me, but they won't outwork me. 
There's an op-ed in the Arizona Republic. It, it says essentially that you should be in the polling lead, but that you got in your own way chasing after part of the electorate that would never be yours, those folks who are mad at you because you did not insist the 2020 election was stolen, and you've been punished by Trump and his supporters for that. Uh, we know Arizona you know, really got the spotlight in the 2020 election. What is your response to an op-ed like that? <laughs> Look, I mean, I wish uh, the Republic um, spent a little more time focusing on our accomplishments and less time attacking us, because the reality is, Look, the, the Republic, there's a headline today or there's a headline about the fact that we're in court right now fighting for life and trying to get the law enforced that the legislature passed when it comes to abortion in Arizona. And instead, they write some inflammatory headline and they never mention, oh, wait a minute, Brnovich has recovered more restitution for more victims than any other AG in our state's history. I have prosecuted more human trafficking cases in our state's history than anyone. I've literally successfully prosecuted people of my own political party. So, you know, I, I am going to always stand on my principles. And as regards to the election, I tell people all the time, I wasn't chasing anybody. I've said, President Trump, you care about border security, energy independence, confirming good federal judges, low taxes. I'm your guy. But I will never say something that I can't prove. I, I began my career as a gang prosecutor. I've been a federal prosecutor, you know, and, you know, someone that's literally had the Democrats file bar complaints against me. I, I've had to fight, and so I have made sure when we do things, we're not like the clown prosecutors in New York. We don't just throw stuff against the wall. I mean, we make sure we do things the right way. Because when you're the government, you can take away people's livelihoods, life, liberty, property. So with that comes an awesome responsibility. And in the 2020 election cycle, no one did more for election integrity than I did. I mean, literally, there is a case called Brnovich v. DNC, named after me, that I personally argued at the U.S. Supreme Court when others wouldn't stand up. And that case stands, it was a 6-3 decision that says states can enact common sense election integrity measures like limitations or restrictions on ballot harvesting, limitations on out-of-precinct voting. And as a result of that case, you've seen states like Georgia and other states enact common sense election integrity measures. When the far left tried to extend the ballot curing period in 2020, they were successful in places like Pennsylvania, but they weren't successful in Arizona because I was in court fighting that. I mean, heck, I sued the county recorder when he tried to mail out mail-in ballots to everyone, whether they request it or not. So I can only talk about my real record. I have done things, and I guess it's just a sign of the times when you get the left-wing editorial board attacking you, trying to give you unsolicited political advice. And at the same time, you know, because you won't say something that President Trump wants you to say, even though you agree with many of his policies, then he's attacking you. So I would just like to think... It goes back to the way I was brought up. If you do the right thing in the right way, it will all work out in the end. And that's what I honestly and sincerely believe in whatever position it is, whether it's on the election, whether it's on you know federalism, whether it's on the Second Amendment. I will tell you what I think and why I hold that position and what I've done, including in the courtrooms to defend those positions of federalism and freedom. And, you know, um, I think, like I said, people respect that, but at least you know where I stand. A New York Times Siena College poll this month found that um, only 41 percent of Hispanic voters say they, they intend to vote for Democrats in the midterms. Um, 38 percent said they preferred GOP candidates. We are hearing more talk of, of Latinos maybe shifting. Um, you know, they're still largely uh, voting Democrat, but we'll, we'll see what the midterms hold. But we are hearing that discussion more and more, right? Roughly 24% of Arizona is Latino, uh, or at least is, is comprised of Latino voters. What is your sense 
um, as you look ahead to November, especially in Arizona? Are, are Latinos shifting? Well, I, th- I think there's, a, there's sometimes the left underappreciates that the reason why people come here is because the rule of law has to mean something, that all of us, no matter who we are, where we come from, we have an opportunity to get ahead. And one of the reasons why I'm such a border hawk is because I think the Biden administration is clearly undermining that. And I am a first-generation American, and as I said, I never had done polling before or looked at polls, but what I would do is I'd talk to my mom and her friends from church, and if you talk to people from the you know, former Yugoslavia, former communist countries, Hungary, Poland, they are disgusted by what's happening right now because they see it as fundamentally undermining the right way to do immigration, and you know, no one was giving them free hotel rooms and planes to go visit their cousins, and you know, they were working two and three jobs to try to get ahead. So you have to have a system that doesn't reward lawlessness and encourages and incentivizes anarchy and chaos and empowers the cartels. And so I think even Hispanic voters appreciate that. And I've, I mean, I can tell you so many anecdotes of people coming up to me. There's people like one of my friends, supporters, Pastor Jose Gonzalez in Arizona. You know, we get together with you know, some of his parishioners and they will tell you, I mean, I've heard stories like some people had to wait 12, 14 years in order to, you know, get their legal status. And so they don't like the fact that it's seemingly the people are jumping ahead in line. And then when you combine that with the fact that the cartels are exploiting these people and they're enriching themselves and they know that as the cartels get richer and richer and more powerful, that means they're those home countries, the countries they came from are going to become worse and worse and worse and more chaotic. Tell me a little bit about what you are doing right now in Arizona as attorney general on the abortion front. I understand that there are, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, a couple of competing trigger laws. You're fighting to have one enforced that would bar, it sounds like, all abortions except um, to save the life of a mother. This is like a century, more than a century old Law, can you clarify where Arizona is right now and what you're fighting to have in place in the state? Yeah, I'm always fighting for the law, the rule of law and what the law is. And so, you know, I'm on record. I am pro-life, but I, for example, me personally, I have, I have favor exceptions for rape and incest and to save the life of the mother. But Arizona has a law that was recodified, that was reenacted in 1977. It's ARS uh, 13-3603, and that law says that abortions are illegal except in the case, all abortions, except in the case to save the life of the mother. So that law was the one that was reenacted or enacted and republished in 1977. And the Arizona legislature just this last year passed another law dealing with abortion. And in that law, there's literally a paragraph that says nothing in this statute is designed to repeal Uh 13-3603. That's still the law in Arizona. So, you know, as a, as a lawyer, as a constitutional lawyer, the law clearly says this is what the law said in 1977. This is what the law says that they recently reenacted. And so that's what we think the law is. Now, look, ultimately, it will be up to the court. So what we did just yet, um, this week is we filed a motion in Pima County because there had been an injunction put in place on that law when the Roe decision happened. And so we filed an injunction today asking or excuse me, filed a motion asking that that injunction be lifted in light of the Dobbs case, Got it. which overturned Roe. So that that's where we're at right now. And ultimately, I mean, you know, we serve Planned Parenthood, so they're going to be in court, obviously, arguing against us. And so it's, it's going to be 
for a judge is ultimately to decide what the status of the law is. But our position is, is the 1977 recodified, reenacted law is the law, and that bans all abortions except in the case to save the mother. And would it result in, I'm reading some articles here, maybe you can clarify, would it result in doctors who did perform abortions in violation of that law, if if, if that law were codified, um, that those doctors would be prosecuted or could could go to jail if they performed an abortion? Yeah, the law is focused is focused on the doctors and ultimately the county attorneys in Arizona, like the equivalent of a district attorney in many places, they have primary jurisdiction over that. So it would be up to the individual, the various 15 county prosecutors in the different counties to make those decisions as to charging. But, you know, as, as, as someone that's you know been prosecuting cases, I mean, every case is different, but that's generally what the law says. I, I know Republicans are largely optimistic about the the midterms this year overall, really across the country. Um, but what is your sense of the overturning of Roe and how that motivates Democrats? Does that uh, does that create uh, a, a new tension and less of this big red wave, or do you is your sense as you campaign that inflation is just dominating and it, it will not overtake that issue, or that inflation would overtake that issue? Look, I'm not a political consultant or a professional, and, you know, there's all these people, you know, in D.C. and other places that debate all that stuff. I will just tell you that when I go to the grocery store, when I go to the gas station, when I go to church, everyone's talking about security, border security and economic security. And people are worried. They're worried, you know, you hear from bartenders or waitresses about they're spending, you know, the first two or three hours of their shift just to pay for their gas to get to work. You know, people are worried about, you know, housing costs are going through the roof, grocery costs, you know, milk, eggs, all that stuff is expensive. And people are now they have have, they have this economic insecurity. And so I think at the end of the day, you know, when you're worried about whether you're going to have a roof over your head or whether you can if you can afford to feed your family, whether you're going to have a job, whether you're worried that, you know, the cartels are flooding all this fentanyl into our communities and we're seeing places like Pima County where overdose deaths now are the number one cause of deaths for young people. I mean, those are issues that people talk about all the time, every day. And so I think the election is going to come down to security, border security and economic security. But I also know, I also know that if you don't have a principled Arizona standing up to Mark Kelly, that, you know, it, it's not going to be a slam dunk. And anybody that thinks that doesn't understand Arizona or Arizona politics. One more question for you about Arizona Republicans, um, because we did see uh, a big effort to recount the vote in Arizona. Blake Masters is polling well in that Senate race that you are in. He has said the the January 6th attack on the Capitol may have been a false flag operation. Um, The Arizona Republican candidate for governor who is backed by Trump, Carrie Lake, she's uh, polling well. She has said the election was stolen. Is it your sense, do do Arizona Republicans go with these folks, as the polls sort of indicate right now, or do you think in the end they're going to end up being more like Georgia Republicans who, you know, rejected Trump's pick in the governor's race? Uh, You know, they want to keep Governor Brian Kemp and even Secretary of State Raffensperger after all of that, after all of that discussion over the election. Yeah, I wouldn't be running and I wouldn't be out there every single day fighting for Arizona if I didn't truly believe I could win. And I've learned one thing in my life growing up in Arizona, we have a long history of rejecting self-funders. And if there's one thing we hate worse than self-funders, 
It's some guy from California or people from New York trying to buy a Senate seat. And so I think at the end of the day, people can talk and they can say all sorts of stuff. But voters, at the end of the day, they're going to say, what has this person actually done? What positions Hmm. have they actually taken? When they had a chance to stand up, for example, you know, when I was in court in Brnovich v. DNC, my goodness, um, Blake's a lawyer. He didn't lift a finger. He didn't file an amicus brief. He didn't do anything. So all these people that are saying this stuff now, I think at the end of the day, people are going to realize that they're phonies. I mean, they're phonies. And, you know, um, so I, I think that folks appreciate that even, as I said earlier, when they don't always agree with me, they know that I'm a principled Arizona, and I think that's going to carry it at the end of the day. Arizona Attorney General and Republican Senate candidate Mark Brnovich, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington, the January 6th committee says an early morning tweet from former President Trump helped spark the Capitol riot last year. We'll review that testimony with congressional correspondent Chad Pergram. And correspondent Kevin Cork looks at the COVID recoveries in red and blue states. Until then, I'm Jared Alpert. Thanks for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.